it's a pop it's like, film, but it's with like middle-aged uh, people who are just living day by day. What the fuck, man? That's, that's so great. Saying, hey, motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? Welcome to One Fucking Hour. Uh, my name is Evan Husney. Of course, joined to my left by Tom Fitzgerald. Tom. Hello, folks. <laughs> uh, to my right, Mr. Marcus Herring. Marcus. What is up, you guys? It's good <laughs> to be here, huh? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, fresh, uh, hot off the heels of our Zardoz episode last week. <laughs> uh, that was a that doozy. Was, that was an interesting experiment, but... You know, a, a, a very interesting, unexpected, sort of fascinating, complex look at a at a weird flop, I'd say. But great feedback that we got from everybody. So really appreciate that a lot for everyone to check that out. Yeah, so definitely. Uh, an interesting exercise. Um, all right. <clears throat> but now, this fucking hour is on uh, Quentin Tarantino's 1997 film, Jackie Brown. Um, so shall we start the clock, gentlemen? Please. All right. All right. <clears throat> I'm going to start this one off, uh, if you don't mind. Gentlemen, if I can have the floor for just 90 seconds. Um, I, you know, we all love this movie a lot. You know, I think all of us would agree that, you know, it's we feel it's Quentin Tarantino's best film, maybe by a mile, right? That's kind of the log line of the show. And for me, I had this revelation. Like last night, you know, to to quote the professional wrestler, Macho Man Randy Savage, uh, last night I was staring at a candle for two hours, and that candle gave me new light, you know? And um, I was realizing that I think that, I was like, is Jackie Brown my favorite film of the 1990s? Whoa. It, I know, which totally came as a surprise to myself. I'm like, is it? Is Quentin Tarantino film my favorite movie of the 90s? Because I would never consider myself a fan of Quentin Tarantino's films whatsoever. But I was really thinking about it. And I was like, mm -hmm. well, look, there's Silence of the Lambs. You know, I love that movie. That's 1990. That's on the edge. Goodfellas, 1990. It's on the edge. Yeah. You know, Kiristami, Close Up. That's 1990 on the edge. You know, and I'm just thinking like, yeah. what's a real fucking 90s movie that I love? And I think this is the number one for me. Like, truth, truthfully. And I think the reason why I love this movie so much is for almost a meta reason. Because it's, I think it's one of my favorite film casts of all time. I mean, one of. And I absolutely adore Pam Greer and, and, and Robert Forrester in this movie so mm -hmm. much. It's almost like the experience of watching this movie. You not only see... The, it's just the brilliant choice of taking them out of kind of the exploitation world that they're from and putting them into this movie and showing them in a way that really takes them seriously, you know? And I, I just absolutely love that. I love how it's a low-stakes crime plot. You know, this like kind of... It's like all really about two paper bags, you know, changing hands, really. That's all really the crime element of it is. So it's a very yeah. low-to-the-ground story with these real... Which, which allows you to have these like low-to-the-ground human portraits and opportunities to just hang with the characters where like it's not like a movie like Heat or something, you know, where the crime element is just all over the place. It's M16s blazing in fucking downtown, you know? So anyway, end of the story. I love this movie for how elegant it is and how timeless it is, and that's not something you can say about any other Quentin Tarantino film. Yeah, elegance is a good word, I would say. Uh, and I think that's partly informed by the restraint involved and not just relative to Quentin's other films, you know, but, um, overall, you know, it has a lot of restraint in, um, uh, it could go, especially with him, you know, a lot more, uh, Looney Tunes, um, and it never does. It doesn't even have a really a, that much of a big ending, you well, know, and look, look, well, you and I know that this film is very friends of Eddie Coyle, you know, yes. it's that. Yes. It's that side of Quentin's film love, you know what I mean? And I mean, Jackie Brown is actually a character name in Eddie Coyle, right? right. 
Right, totally. And yeah. I was just going to yeah, say, so I got it. Seeing these actors, mainly like I was saying, Pam Greer, Robert Forrester, and like you, you root for them so hard in this movie, especially at the you end do. of the movie when there's that amazing emotional moment, and Pam is driving off by herself. It's like you're really, it's it's a real meta experience because you're really cheering, rooting for them as characters. Your heart breaks for them as characters because it's so well done. But at the same time, you're also just like cheering for them as actors because they're in their mid forties and they get this opportunity. Yeah. And you're that's a there great point. And it's like, and that to me is like, that means a lot as a viewer because, you know, there's nothing else quite like that, especially in the 90s, but go on. That's that's a great point. There's a dual impact. Just my last little thought on that is um, speaking of how they were just plucked from, you know, uh, the dregs of a lot of like direct-to-video kind of stuff, uh, Forrester and, 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 and Greer, you know, when he plucked them from that, I was, I was thinking it might be funny later to look at their IMDBs because it goes from like, you know, um, like uh, oh boy you know like maniac cop four you know or something you know you know or like uh or like elves five you know i'm just making that up you know but like you know that kind of thing i've seen we've seen those kind of imdbs but then suddenly it's like boom and then oscar nominations you know yeah uh and pam was doing a little bit better uh, as she pointed out to quentin you know she had been in escape from la <laughs> Okay, somebody's got to be an escape from LA. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and and, um, and uh, oh, and Mars Attacks was coming up for. So she was around, but she was not the lead, of course. You know, right. uh, but right. Forster was way down. Like Alligator was a long time ago, and that was kind of when he started really stumbling. You know, and this right. is like it fifteen years like, later. Yeah, it does seem like that trick of like plucking someone out of, uh, you know, res- resurrecting someone's career, like uh, like Travolta and Pulp Fiction and Pam Greer and this and. Um, and then Sophia did it for uh, uh, Bill Murray later on. It seems like that's kind of doesn't happen as much anymore because of all this prestige TV. There's roles for people these days, you know, and I think a lot of directors, their mind goes there like, oh, I'd like, I'd like to work with this actor. You don't really see the same kind of dip in people's career, people of that stature, like, you know, that were huge stars in one era and then like kind of faded out and then came right. back. However, I, I, I will say that I do think that there's a stunt casting element to John Travolta, in my opinion, with Pulp Fiction, a little bit. You know, it's like, hey, you yeah, you wouldn't think it, you know? Uh, like he himself is a pop culture reference. Right. Because he's, he's like broad, mainstream, famous, and Pam and especially Forrester were, were deep cuts. Yeah. And, it wasn't like, that's like Bob Arino's in the movie, you know? Right, right. And it's kind of like where I, I, I truly believe you know, that Quentin felt that they were like the, the people he envisioned and thought about for those roles. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and yet they, and, and, and they play them so well. And it's, and I know I'm belaboring the same point, but it's so great to see these actors who, I mean, they were exploitation stars and there's, you know, they have fan bases and in, in those films, but this is really yeah. the chance where you're kind of classifying them with the rest of everybody else, that they're not just character actors. They're really great. They're really great actors and they're being yeah. taken serious, seriously, uh, for the first time. And so there's power in that, you know? Look, he has a great eye in all kinds of ways. And one of them is casting. Um, also, you know, actually, you know, th- this is not the film that broke Sam Jackson. You know, that was one before with Pulp Fiction, but he did pluck Jackson from obscurity. You know, he was sticks and Goodfellas for like, you know, a second and gets killed. So he really didn't have much of a career either. And he became a major presence to this day. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, even more than ever, even more than Travolta, you know? So like, uh, he just has a great eye. I mean, and, and he, and he, and he does not, he's not picky. I don't know. We've all seen these kind of interviews with him from that time. And he talks about the casting because everybody's asking about the casting and he just, you know, uh, tells us like how it really works in Hollywood. So often it's just, there's literally like a book, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. like over 50, over 50 character actor. And it's just the same people, you know, Wilford Brimley or something, you know, and so they just keep getting, and I see that still happening. Sure. There's, you know, like, like, you know, you see a character actor who you see for the first time. Uh, and then it's like, oh God, now, now like we're going to see Molly Shannon forever. Like Molly Shannon was nothing. And then she, and not on in the book. Okay. Yeah. And then she was in the book and is in the book and she's a big star. That just is one example I thought of this afternoon. And it's just it, it, uh, casting. What I'm trying to say is still lazy and, um, and uh, driven by uh, just like uh, just generic uh, generic lists, and he has he's he, it's a lost art to have inspired casting. Uh, 
Yeah. And that's one of the great things that he brought into the 90s, which was it was a lost art of film, which was was casting. And uh, this is a perfect example of that. He got the right people. I think it's his best casting totally. because um, he gets a little stunty. That's true. And he does start relying on people in the past few years. That's true. And he does go for movie stars more now. You know, like the last one had like two, two of the biggest stars of all time or of time, our time. You yeah. know what I mean? And uh, it's like, okay, all right, DiCaprio, it's cool, you know, but like he didn't, su- he really surprised us with Jackie Brown more than totally. any other film that I can think of. Oh, my in the God. Casting, in, the, uh-huh. in the casting. Totally. And let's, let's sort of touch on this real quick as a nice segue, because uh, this is something that comes up, uh, even came up last week, uh, is sort of a thing we're, we're, we're really harping on, is the, the kind of magnolia effect of, uh, right. <laughs> you know, ha- right. doing a, having a follow-up to a massively successful film and, and Pulp yeah, Fiction last week was just to reiterate just to define Magnolia and you could do that with Magnolia so Boogie Nights huge you get a blank check as a director do the movie you want Magnolia oh my god and then Deliverance <laughs> you killed it oh my god what do you really want to do it's like I want to do Zardoz but I know where you're going with this what did he do after Pulp Fiction which was his Deliverance and Boogie Nights yeah right so so Pulp Fiction this massive you know one of the most massively culturally zeitgeisty relevant massive. films of the 90s changed everything and then you know he decides to follow it up with this just you know he doesn't go bigger he doesn't try to top it he goes smaller it, he goes smaller and he goes more intimate uh, more intimate and he also demonstrates in, a, in, a, in an extreme level of restraint, as you said, and yeah. um, and that's like anti-mag- he did an anti magnolia, which is maybe unprecedented. I know, so that's that's truly commendable, and I wish he would have stuck on that train a little bit because then he overcompensated with the next well, couple of well, films there, the eight hour whatever Kill Bill, that's his magnolia. Yeah, so. <laughs> but he, he didn't he didn't directly follow it up. He didn't yeah. directly follow. He did some up, weird no. things right afterwards, right? Like uh, Destiny turns on the radio, or he was like the lead. No, actor. that was like before, yeah. or right at the exact same time, yeah. like '93 or something. You know. But he also no, he the did, other thing he did was yeah. Four Rooms, which was kind of a goof. Yeah, yeah. And, and then he wrote right. like, Romance, right? So well, that was earlier. Yeah, yeah. Don't That's like before publication. Don't forget about uh, you know Grindhouse, you know, and shit like that. So, um, but <laughs> how uh, could I not? <laughs> One thing with this movie yeah, I that I, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's painful. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, well, most of this movie is kind of after Jackie Brown. I have a heart, a very difficult time with. Um, but the thing is that for me, because it's just so cartoony and it's just over the top and it's like running around with samurai swords yeah. and I, you know, it's just it's just cartoons, you know. Right. It just becomes it literal like, cartoons in Kill Bill. <laughs> well, like it's just like a pastiche of movie references, which is it's really tough for like people like us who we love. Hey, I love the seventies. We love the seventies. You know, we love movies. You know, I was like, I was a kid when Pulp Fiction came out. I'm sure QT has like a big influence and inspiration for me to like love those kind of movies, you know, Mm -hmm. but you know, by the time Kill Bill rolled around, it was like just the pure references one after another. That's all it felt like to me. And like, I might've missed it. I was probably too young to pick up on all the references and, um, uh, and uh, you know, Pulp Fiction, uh, or or Jackie Brown, but they got too much for me in, in um, uh, Kill Bill. But I think that Jackie Brown's like the perfect balance of pastiche and like just or an actual movie. Like uh, it opens with pastiche. You know, there right. are references threaded throughout. Yeah, I won't name any specifically right now, but like it's it doesn't rely purely on that. Or you know, there's references to the '70s, but it's not doesn't take place in the '70s. It's not like it's you know so um anyway i think it's well, uh, I, oh, go ahead Evan. i was just gonna say uh, and, and tagging right after this i was just gonna say i think the difference with this movie uh, uh versus the others in his filmography is you know the, uh, everyone talks about homage and the homages he makes and the references or whatnot i don't see this movie as much of an homage as the other movies i see it more as a tribute you know, and that kind of goes back as what I was saying. I think there is a fine line between homage and tribute because that feeling you get when you see Pam Greer uh, and uh, Robert Forrester, et cetera, et cetera, on the screen, it's just a wonderful tribute to them as people and as actors. And because it's not just referencing the characters they played before, you know, it's like I'm no. I'm paying tribute to this person. And, who, and that's what makes it, I think more special and ha- it has a deeper emotional connection at least i do and it has a real warmth like we were saying warmth. it's his most generous film uh we were talking earlier about this like he's very giving uh and and very open to i wouldn't call it collaboration but um 
there's a he, he did get a great talented group of people together and they brought a lot to it but you know we were talking about this just now you know marcus you're mentioning like pastiche and homage and all that i think it's homage by the way just kidding sorry somebody <laughs> said homage uh on oh. one of these uh, other uh podcasts i, I vote like, no no yeah, exactly no. click so okay so all kidding aside. So I'm saying, um, you know, we're talking about that. And I think he's doing something very sophisticated. And it's almost like this, like, um, like more evolved Quentin Tarantino, frankly, in Jackie Brown, in that it's imagining a world where it's not just a one for one tribute to the 70s and yeah. is the films he loved and all that stuff. No, and what I mean by that is like, it's not set in the 70s. And it's not, it's not a tribute to the 70s because you're in the 90s, like in that mall, for instance, you know, it's the mm-hmm. 90s in that in the film itself. But the color tones, the color grading is super 70s. Uh, the, the film make the, like the filmmaking itself, you know, like it's a lot of earth tones and it's like a more muted color tone. For instance, you know, compositions, uh, he, he goes to a lot of places that might as well have been in the 70s, like his office probably looks identical to the way it did 20 years before, right? Mm-hmm. And they go to this bar that is hasn't changed since 1971, you know, that kind of thing. So it's kind of, what I'm saying is it's sort of this like really nice kind of almost trippy hybrid where it's not this, like I said, this brute one for one tribute, like uh, 70s car, 70s song, you know, it's not, it's more just kind of, uh, it, it's it's um, a meshing in this really nice way. And, you know, we're saying that like, she's playing a real person and everything like that. Uh, and of course, she's more muted than like Foxy Brown or whatever back in the 70s. But there are moments when she is like holding a gun to a motherfucker's dick, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like that, it, that does happen. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's in a more realistic context, but it's still uh, it's, it's almost as if and this is a total BS thing I'm making up here as if like an art house director in 1975 was inspired by Jackie Brown or sorry, by Foxy Brown or something. And they, but he made this downbeat, like this French art house dickhead, you know, filmmaker made this like, like, like Brisson or something, made this really downbeat grindhouse film. So meaning the setting and the plot is grindhouse, but he slowed everything down, lowered the temperature because, and this is the last thing I'll say as an example, it, it, it it's the components more or less of, of a movie like Coffee or Foxy Brown, but it plays in the world of this naturalism that's much more like the long goodbye like the early parts of the long goodbye when he's feeding his cat for a long time. And so that never happened in the seventies. There was never a, a film with a plot and characters that live in the underworld mm-hmm. in, an, in a ghetto urban setting, you know, and right. like people are getting shot to death, but, but it's played out where like, yeah, like it's California split and they're like having breakfast, staying up all night with two uh, cocktail waitresses. You know what I'm saying? It's well, like yeah. he, he made this thing happen that never happened. And it's brilliant because it's it is two seventies elements that he and we all dearly love, and it works beautifully. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, totally. And I, I feel that the characters have a little bit of, uh, you know, fantasy into that too. It's like uh, that the, they were in they were in their youth in the seventies. You know, uh, Jackie and Max were like they were in their twenties in the seventies, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, she listens to records. He's reading like a spy novel. You know about like a, a middle-aged man who um, I, I noticed it's, I looked it up. It was like the Berlin game. It's about a middle-aged uh, guy who becomes a spy or something. So the <laughs> cool. real you know, dad um, novel. <laughs> right. But he's like, you know, it's like about a, he's sort of what his mental space is like imagining a middle-aged guy doing something kind of, you know, movie esque, you know, and like, Pam or Jackie Brown at the end, she's actually the, there's a music playing and she's singing along with the theme song. Like she's singing the theme song at the end of the movie, um, that character. And it's almost like she's living out a fantasy of the seventies movies in a way, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's like a more real life version of it. Anyway, I well, he likes, he likes there. The, remember guys, there's so much about, the about age in this movie, you know, and aging right. and generation. Yeah. But he, uh, he likes movies. Remember he goes to see it and there's a cute little wink where the Jackie Brown last song in the credits is playing as he's walking out of the mall movie. Yeah, so, right. You know. Yeah, one thing But he uh, likes movies, you know? Yeah, yeah, one thing on that Marcus too, it's like <clears throat> for me it's another reason I love it too is is the fact that, you know, 
this is a story about yeah two middle-aged people ostensibly you know the two main characters right it's about you know it's this middle-aged romance but it's also like you know we're we're seeing this massive follow-up to put it go back to the magnolia thing it's a massive follow-up film but it's really about you know a middle-aged black woman who makes sixteen thousand dollars a year you know she's a flight attendant and this is obviously going back a little bit to the source material too but just like the stakes of that and wanting to get yours and of course you know max cherry who uh who is just this disenchanted bail bondsman blue collar guy like i love that that's so down to earth you know and i know i don't know why i don't know why but his world is so well etched in these simple ways like I don't know why, guys. I can't explain it. But there's a golf ball in his glove compartment when he looks for his gun. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, I, and I'm not and I'm like, is that his lucky golf ball or like whatever, whatever it is, it's a golf ball. And just his whole decor. And, you know, I got to maybe push back a little bit because I think that, you know, he is even older. Like he didn't really hit 1970 really hard because he was already older. You know what I mean? Right. He's only 15 years, 10 years older. Or something. Yeah. So like he's actually. There's almost characters in 60s movies that are like him. He never freaked out, you know, and he's just but he's just a guy. He's not like a conservative or anything like that. But I really we all we all walk by and see and have experienced these people. Some uh, some guys like this are are some of our dads out there. You know what I mean? Uh, Not mine, but like, you know, he's just a he's just a regular American person. And that's why I really felt close to him, because he just uh, it's it's you again. No one ever covers a guy who has a middling career and he's kind of like almost near retirement and he's not a remarkable person in any obvious ways, but he is remarkable because he did help Jackie out. And as someone pointed out once, they felt that maybe he had some idealism when he was young because he really did just want to help people in this capacity as a bail bondsman. You know what I mean? And he really, in a way, is just like a little uh, a guardian angel, at least for we're seeing with Jackie. Yes, he's attracted to her, but he also like cares about her and believes in her and wants to help her because he can see that she's a good person, you know? So he's just like this nice, unassuming man who is just eked out this little life of his. Yeah. And you just don't see that. You know, when you, you know, the only times you see that are in a, uh, like an occasionally pretty good film, like about Schmidt kind of, he's more well off, but somewhat like that. Just, you'd really see, well, what I'm saying is you only really see observations of kind of an everyman like that in almost more downbeat, almost Mm -hmm. more pretentious kinds of art house films, but it's great to see in a fun movie. Like Jackie Brown is ultimately fun. And you're seeing this guy who's just living his life and doing the best he can day to day and her and her, both of them. And yeah. that is really trippy no, because no. you only see that kind of depiction in like, you know, woman on a verge of a nervous breakdown or whatever. <laughs> Sorry. Woman under the influence. Oh, Sorry. yeah. Woman under the verge of nervous breakdown. Influence. That's Whoops. Well, no, but, just, but you know what I'm saying? You know. Yeah. yeah. I was just, just going to say like to. It's a pop it's film, like, but it's with like middle aged uh, people who are just living day by day what the fuck man that's, that's so great saying. hey best film in the that's 90s uh and and also just like in terms of just and just to put a firm point on that i mean that fucking scene where he goes and how adorable is it when he goes to buy the goddamn you know delphonics cassette tape i mean that is just incredible beautiful way just to very subtly start to show the audience how he's feeling and it is it's amazing it's an amazing moment. we're not worthy I know, and and it's not cartoon. And him corny singing bullshit. along with it too is just like the, well, he only plays it on the cassette. Like he just probably rewinds it to the beginning of the in tape. The car. Yeah. We only see him listening to that one song. Yeah, and it's Probably like sort of mouthing it to himself while he's singing is like so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, may it's I, so uh, great, and and it's so simple. Say. And that's and that's just such simple filmmaking. Like like him, and then you just see the shot of rows of shitty cassettes, which is so '90s, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. plastic cassettes. Anyway. And like you said about every man, just just to like get off on Robert Forster for a second, he just is the ultimate like mm-hmm. every man guy, like bl- regular old blue collar dude, like in every yeah man. yeah. It was great to see him, <laughs> but well, a good was, person, you yeah, know? No, totally. Like not a good. not a MAGA guy or anything, just a guy. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And one thing I was gonna say too about Robert Forster, it's like you know even in the films in, of his in his heyday or in more like. When I think back to a movie like Vigilante, which I like quite a, quite a bit, actually, you know, the uh, Bill yeah. Lustig re- uh, revenge film. I mean, that's a that yeah. sleazy kind of exploitation movie. But you see him in that movie, you know, and it's interesting to what, you know, Quentin was probably envisioning 
with casting Robert Forrester is even though that movie is just kind of, you know, a very low budget kind of, you know, death wish kind of thing. But there's moments in that movie where, you know, because he goes to prison in that film, his wife is, you know, leaves him and then he comes out of prison, you know, kind of wrongfully accused for doing what he's doing. And he comes back and there's this amazing moment where he's just unpacking, you know, things and unpacking his house and he's just holding a piece of Tupperware and he's like, look at this. 10 years of my fucking life. What is it? Plastic shit. Oh, it's just this amazing wow. moment that he adds I've so that. much to this yeah. just kind of, you know, just kind of sleazy exploitation film. But that's what he probably responded to in casting him. Um, I'm sure because he has a great eye, like we were saying, you know, like, because the thing is, and Quentin, you know, pats himself on the back about this, but right on is um, he has no prejudice or he didn't at least, or at least with this film, um, no prejudice in casting. Like, like, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a stunt. It won't help the box. Of course it didn't help the box office. One dollar right. ever yeah. Robert Forrester, <laughs> you know, and, um, but also he wasn't like playing the game. Like, well, you know, you get, you know, DiCaprio's moving up and like, well, you know, like, right. uh, I'll rewrite it. Filmmaker, not every filmmaker that has the, you know, ability to do that either. You know, no. well, he got it put together. He got the, well, he got the Magnolia blank yeah. check. Yeah, look exactly. what he did with it. That's fucking hot, dude. I know. To do that with your Magnolia blank check, you know. <laughs> can I do? Uh, can I? Can I just go back to one thing you were saying earlier, <clears throat> as you were talking about the look of the movie, and just to kind of talk just quickly technically about the movie. Um, I also think it's very interesting in Quentin's, you know, to to do, you know, for for his follow up to the to the to the big Pulp Fiction, right? He actually mm-hmm. changes DPs for this movie, which I thought right. was really interesting because. He, he the guy who shot Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. He, now he goes to Guillermo Navarro, this other uh, you know DP who brings a totally. You've mentioned him before. I, I think. don't know. Have I? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know. I, I met him once uh, years ago. He's a very okay. nice person. Oh, well, <laughs> maybe okay, I brought him go. up before. <laughs> yeah, I and, think so. But he's awesome because he brings this really timeless. I keep going back to this movie feeling timeless because I have a hard time watching Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction today where this movie i can go back and it feels timeless it feels naturalistic the pastiche isn't there the cartoon less dated corny. for There's you no corny samurai bruce willis with samurai swords and quoting bibles and shit like that this oh. is like timeless naturalistic look that's so classy and the fact that you know because you look at pulp fiction it's got the burnt out washed out technicolor reference you know thing going for it exactly that's what has, i mean this movie has like a, a yeah warm browns and deep reds and just like earth toniness but also actually if i can well the pace i I, did we bring up the pace earlier in some regard no but oh well i was saying like it's paced like you know uh, an altman thing but it's in a setting of exploitation but like the pace you know was another kudo for him it's i just want to say that and you guys go off but like um the pacing is not in the same speed as the 90s at all like like especially like you you know pacing's bad still but um things were getting really revved up in an awful way you know like uh, <laughs> natural born killers but like you know um <laughs> and, and more sports yeah. you know yeah but anyway i'm just saying the pacing was so alien yeah. you know like he i've heard him say like you know young people are like it was kind of pacing kinda was slow kind of slow Yes, that's our buddy, who, uh, worked, <laughs> our editor buddy who worked on uh, Psycho 1998. Woo. And see, there she's, she, she's saying that. And those morons who made Psycho reboot a year later are like, kind of pick up the pace, this Hitchcock stuff. What? And Quentin was just like, no, fuck you. Right. This is cinema. Well, the and, 90s uh, were so extreme and like radical. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, well and, and music video influenced. Absolutely. Yeah. But I do, I do want to talk about the pace, but just wanted to touch one base, one thing about the look before we moved on from that subject was just that the it's shot on film, right? But there's like no grain, which I think Pulp Fiction does too, where it's like you forget that it's on film, but it looks so much better. And when I was watching this time with Jackie Brown, I was uh, picking up that it's such a good argument for using film still because there's no grain, so no problems there, you know. And then it was like uh, it's really tied on people's faces a lot, and like you can oh, see yeah. their. Their pores and stuff, but it doesn't look bad. Like it's you know, and I watch like HD TV now, like a you know a television show or something. I'm just really fixated on how bad people's like you know uh, how bad people's faces look really close up on HD, you know, whatever. And this, 
and something about like just the combination of like film makeup that they have perfected how to do film makeup, you know, over the course of like 80 right. years or whatever right. yeah. mixed with 35 millimeter film is just this perfect kind of thing. And I just feel like makeup and like HD, you know, uh, video just don't really, or, you know, no. digital cinema, there's still kind of a disconnect there. And this well, there's no looks, magic. There's no magic. In there's no magic. Movie right. Movie. This yeah. one, this no has that, the titles have that wow and flutter, like little gate weave and stuff, you know, and like there's just all these, you know. But again, it's all restraint. He doesn't, you know, like, like he, he gets, he just does enough. Like he'll, he'll use across 110th Street, but like he doesn't, it's not gratuitous in the, the winking towards the old school. It, you know, it's just a movie first mm-hmm. that touches mm-hmm. on, you know, like maybe some, not even tropes of the seventies in black exploitation, but just in telling a story that has a lot of black people in it in, you know, bad neighborhoods and there's like crime and stuff, you know, it's going to wind up bumping into, in our consciousness, you know, a seventies film, you know, um, and that's, and that's another thing is, um, the depiction of black people in this film, you know, is like, uh, uh, it's not trying to, um, you know, like uh, be part of like the solution in depicting this kind of suburban black American experience, like soul food or something like that. You know what I mean? Which is fine, but just like, um, but it's also not garbage and they're not morons and it's not ugly and grotesque. You know, they're just like people, you know, the way this is just a movie, like she's just a woman, you know, like a human being, you know, and even Ordell is a human being. Now, Mm -hmm. Ordell, the characters, I don't know. Uh, I just have a note here that I keep, I can't stop looking at for some reason, but Ordell is kind of a loser is what I made as a note. And maybe we could start rattling yeah. off the cast. So, uh, I don't know. You want to start with Ordell? Yeah. Indulge me. Yeah. Let's, let, let, let's, let's talk about Sam Jackson in this movie, you know, uh, for me, but just off of what you're saying about how he's kind of a loser. Um, I think uh, going to the source material of Jackie Brown, obviously based on an Elmore Leonard novel, so it's right in the pocket of someone who writes, you know, great crime fiction, you know, <clears throat> and and comes up with you know characters like this. And one thing I right. think that w- another reason I love this movie, man, and another reason why I love crime fiction, I have a whole bookshelf behind me, is yeah. cr- cr- noir fiction, crime fiction understands how to write a fucking villain, as opposed to most screenwriters. Villains should be dumb and scary and mm. Ordell is dumb and scary and that's what makes him a real threat you know that's what real villains are in real life are people that are fucking stupid and scary you know but he's yeah, a real person I'm not trying to just like dismiss him because he's a real person and there's even times in this movie that you feel bad for him because you do all, it's yeah, his money yeah it's <laughs> his fucking money but he also right. is just like you know he's just somebody that um, you know has you know, I'm not trying to dismiss him in that way. I'm just saying that he's not mm-hmm. like a smart person, you know. And um, and and when you're depicting a cold as ice villain like this, sometimes that's scarier than just some supreme badass, is what I'm saying. Which most yeah. films have cartoonish. It's not cartoonish. Exactly. Well, there's layers to Ardell, and boy, is he the perfect guy to play that character, you know. And uh, maybe we'll play our first clip of the of the show here. Yeah. But um, the yeah. the one moment that really caught me in um. Sam Jackson's character, uh, his performance, I mean, is um, right at the very end. One of the last times you see him and one of the last moments of his life is he's kind of reading the riot act outside of um, uh, Max's office. And he's telling Max, as they're both seated in the car, like, look, if this happens, if this happens, if this doesn't happen, if that doesn't happen, you're dead. You know, like you got it. And it's what struck me was, yes, it's scary. And he's been intimidating and scary when it needs to be throughout the whole film. And it's a very Sam Jackson, you know, button he presses. But he's also, you can tell, kind of freaked out because he knows he's so serious about telling uh, Forrester, like, are you sure there's nothing up your sleeve here? Because he kind of knows because he plays tricks on people and he fucks around. He's like, I am, I'm kind of walking into a trap. I've set traps guys. So this feels like a trap, but I got to roll the dice. Cause if my, and he, cause he's like, is my money in that office? You know what I mean? Anyway, I'll let the scene play out. But I'm just saying that um, it is the hint of not vulnerability, but he's, he's, he, he's, he's not, he's not as cool a cucumber as he is in the rest of the film. Even when he's saying cool cucumber stuff to Forrester. So let's check it out. Listen, I go walking in there, and that nigga Winston or anybody else is in there, you the first motherfucker to get shot, you understand me? 
Yeah. So good. That ain't nothing you want to tell me before we get out this car, is there? Nope. Last chance, motherfucker, you sure? Yeah. Anyway, so he's kind of vulnerable because you know what? He doesn't have to showboat to Forrester's character really right then. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't have to do the like his kind of BS, you know, like a cool cucumber, you know, charisma thing because uh, the stakes are really high and he doesn't have to do that here. And and, uh, and he was right. And he gets shot right in the fucking chest the second he walks through the doorway. So, um, yeah. <laughs> just kidding uh, well that's how this show he, works everyone should have seen all the films we do by the way of course yeah anyway. he looks one of the great there's such a great moment and shot is when um towards the beginning when he pulls the trick on beaumont's character and tricks him to get into the trunk chris tucker chris tucker right uh beaumont yeah when he uh he's like pulling his gloves on you know and he's like taking a moment to pull each glove on and it takes a minute to get them all like on and then he looks back he sort of smiles to himself and that great you know uh brothers johnson song is playing it just sounds like scary music you know it's such a great just that all the pieces really come together at that moment just like the design the gloves are perfect the, it looks great the music's amazing the performance is amazing he looks cool as shit and he's terrifying yeah. you know it's photography is amazing moment. that's just yeah. like filmmaking like 101 well well, the whole beaumont run and you know we're not going to show all of it but like maybe we just have the last little part of it we can maybe show folks but like uh that is well god damn it quentin said that somebody said that that's his elvis Elvis mitchell Mitchell. big deal but like um but still (laughs) but i understand i understand making that um observation that there's it's kind of like a little bottle episode within um Mm -hmm. uh the film and it's just the beaumont thing is just pitch perfect and it's early like you know people say you know the first half of the movie just like just people sitting around and you get to know them but the beaumont thing is is a thing there's beginning middle and an end and of course it's consequential and it's it's part of the developing plot but it's such a perfect um uh quentin moment and everything is done pitch perfectly, like Marcus is saying. Everything's great, and it ends. And we've all individually, I think, really observed the um, and are trying to come to get the right words, but uh, how it works when he shoots him yeah. in the trunk of the car. And I remember when I first saw it back in the day, I was like, "Wow, that's remarkable. That's unlike Quentin, but it's also again unlike the '90s to have." I wouldn't necessarily call it Brechtian, but it is an uncommon distancing device, or just simply a device where you um there's big action but you get like you know like, you're across the goddamn street and on the roof like, looking at it well it's like something you'd see it's, like it's, in a Mel- it is brecht in it's something you'd see like in a in a jean-pierre melville movie or like a army yeah. of shadows or something where there's like okay, this really great. ice cold distance and ice cold ob- objectivity to what you're seeing and when you're seeing Bird's it eye that, view. yeah when you're seeing it that far away and that far removed it just makes it that much more fucking cold because it's so impersonal Absolutely. and it's just like you know like just execution boom you know we just met this guy and we're just gonna fucking kill you right now boom and you know it's not the first time and it's not the last or well it is the last time but it's not the first time he's made that maneuver like oh i'll do the trunk thing on on beaumont you know what i mean like like it's it's just he just punched the clock it's another day at work it's also not lurid because we don't see the cutaway to his body right. in the trunk. We don't right. see his bloody, and I don't. We don't see Melanie dead either. Well, that's re, we, we have some of those clips too. It's reoccurring. Uh, it's off-screen violence Let's mostly. Unlike that's unlike him. Yeah, we're just super pulled back here, and this is really like you know I'm sure as most Tarantino fans watching this movie for the first time. Uh, you know, this is the first time that he's really showing us any form of like, yeah, cinema violence or however it's going to play out in this movie. And the fact that he establishes it with this is yeah, it's the first know, act pretty, of violence. Yeah. Pretty stark and, and and cool. It's it stopped me in my tracks when I first watched it because I wasn't sure I wasn't sure what to make of it when it first came out because I got excited. You know, everybody had fun with Pulp Fiction, but then I was like, "This is weird, though." And I felt, and it was kind of confusing because it was like it's being marketed weird. Like it's being, I could tell the marketing was deceptive because I saw the trailer and I went, "Right." But also, it's just like I know this film is not like this trailer or Pulp Fiction because they're piece. They're trying to get any like squeeze any lemon of uh, 
you know, genre exploitation juice out of it. And yeah, it's, yeah, I yeah, could yeah. tell even in the trailer, it's not right. Anyway, so I'm just saying, but the, no, no, but what I'm saying is when I first saw it, that really, I took notice on that shot. That's, you know, anyway, but also you're right, Marcus, it's off screen violence, which is how violence is played in this film. And uh, I don't know if you want to thread, like, even maybe just uh, uh, the Bridget Fonda scene in the parking yeah. lot, just as another example, because it's easier to see, you know. Yeah, um, real quick, if I can just put a word. bow on, let me just put a bow on Ordell, if you don't mind, then let's go to that. Please. Scene. Um, just the one thing I want to say is, like, uh, you know, Sam Jackson, I, I think, deserves a ton of credit for this performance. I think it's one of his best in, in, in all of his, you know, ro- his, his oeuvre. But, um, <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. but... Um, and and it's every piece of dialogue that he delivers it. I think it's the realistic, grounded version of Jules, you know, from Pulp Fiction. Yeah, because yeah. He, here here is him, and he's delivering those lines of dialogue so precisely. Every single line that he delivers in this film is actually, if you really tune into it and just watch him, you know, like yeah. do one whole watch through just for Sam. Everything is completely, per, you know. Oh, like the, like with De Niro in the van, you know. Oh. Uh, that's that's a that's on par with what we showed earlier, you know. But uh, oh, maybe just one other thought on Odell too, because I brought up the whole like he's kind of a loser. It's just something I've been playing with in my head that's sort of amusing me because Bridget Fonda breaks it down to De Niro when they're both alone in the apartment, and I you know, and I'm realizing I love always realizing that that's not uh, Odell's beach house. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. like because uh, you assume it, you know, like he's the man. He's got like five women you know, in his stable, you know what I mean? Like, but he doesn't, he somehow hoodwinked this um, beach bunny girl, like he calls her, and she's probably on her way out anyway. She's kind of like doing the math. It's like, I'm out of here and you're getting out of my house. And he lives in this dumpy old craftsman in Compton with this kind of simple girl, farm girl from like the Greyhound bus station. And so so what I'm saying is he's getting deglamorized as you watch the film. I think he might. He says he puts them up, he, but you know, that's his claim is that he puts those girls up that they're like, you know. But, but I do uh, totally. That's her. Okay, but, that's her beach house. He's he's he always there and never at her, at his place because it sucks. Right. You know. He's I, living I think, a fantasy. Right. I I thought um, you know, he's uh, she she says that he's you know, De Niro says like, oh, he sure knows a lot about guns. And she's like, oh, he's just repeating something he overheard. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, <laughs> right, exactly. Thought, that's great. Like, because um, he does, he's he's menacing and he sounds like his master criminal the way he's like talking about the Tech Nine and stuff. It is sort of like, to Evan's point, like a more realistic, grounded version of Jules. It's almost like if you took yeah. Jules as uh, someone was behind the scenes going, like, he's just quoting some shit he heard, read in the Bible. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a fascinating. Uh, uh, bookend comparison piece in Jackson's performance, you know, and one's richer, you know, and 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 more satisfying. And I won't tell you which one. You yeah, know? I I had a, a funny little anecdote too, like about talking. But then we got to move on because we're eighteen minutes here. The thing is yeah, that the the, the uh, I also love talking about how it's a low stakes crime film. You know, it's not really about millions of dollars and about you know all this high stakes stuff. It's really just about no helicopters. Bucks. Yeah, no you helicopters. Know? That is sort no, of QT's like. Uh, wheelhouse though right they're always like small time crooks, yeah right at least in the early days sure 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 and and i i just love that in films in general and and just but like i i love that i he i heard that quentin had written a scene in the film to explain the five hundred thousand dollars that you know i think it was like he had a scene once where like de niro was going to turn to ordell and be you know five hundred thousand dollars is really not that much money yeah and uh, right and then, and then and then the scene is you know ordell saying well it it fucking is in the Philippines, you know. <laughs> so you, know, you can have a butler for ten cents a day, yeah. yeah in yeah, the Philippines, yeah. right? Which is yeah. kind of funny. Well, you know what? Perfect segue to another beloved character, my man, uh, Lewis. What's his name? Uh, you know, De Niro's character. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, uh, De Niro. That <laughs> is an underrated performance because you know he's he's it's it's a subtle performance, but. It's Robert De Niro, and it's as oh, good as any Robert De Niro. God, it's so good. I think the reason it's under it's undervalued is because he it is because it is under he, he, because he does it subtle, and he's such a larger than life star. You know what I mean? I think right. people go he's in playing expecting this ca- him a small character, larger than life, and then he's a little, right. but he's actually acting and being like a you know. I think that's part of the reason why it's like people don't sing its praises as often. Right, know? right. Well, one thing I'll say, 
uh, we were talking about this recently, is uh, our, one of our favorite movies, Straight Time. That's an mm-hmm. old one fucking hour from, from days gone by. Oh, yeah. And boy, we love that film. But I, the first thing I was thinking of when I see the De Niro character, I go, that guy walked out of the world of straight time and he walked into this film set because it not just the way he looks but boy the way he looks and evidently by the way uh de niro has a, a makeup person like this woman who always dresses him to a t to help him get in character he she did here like applying the tattoos properly and does he have an earring or not you know uh, how much gray hair does he have but like uh is he not very straight time like uh he's done time and he just got out and uh quentin himself said like uh De Niro, this is an example of De Niro being so brilliant in that um, he got all the characteristics of what someone who's done about four or five years in the jail, in jail, um, and and all the mannerisms that they don't even know that they're doing in the straight world when they get out. You know what I mean? Like um, just kind of blankly staring, like uh, you know, like uh, like how he holds, how he holds things, how he handles, carries himself, how he walks, and De Niro just nails it. And and uh, he's scary, and he's living the skin of a straight time character. It's it's all really. Oh yeah, and just that the whole like the, the and like the tensions ramping because you know he's been inside, he's been in jail, and he's disassociating because he's just smoking bowl after bowl after bowl. Right. And the whole thing is kind of building within him, and then you know he can't quite get it together because he doesn't believe in kind of what he's doing, and then like had to have to manage. Bridget Fonda's character, you know, and and of course that all builds to a head in that amazing scene. <laughs> that's the part where he's he's so like the, shocking. There's the part where he's like he's like uh, Ordell's talking to him and, and he's like trying to hang up the phone and he's like uh, yeah. De Niro keeps spinning the cord around and getting it wrong. He's like, man, I'm trying to talk to you here, man. Yeah, yeah. He's, like, he's, he's fucking out of it. But you know, one thing, just if I just please indulge me, like with De Niro's incredible performance. I just rewatched this scene and we have it right here actually. So. Uh, um, just look for this when we play this very briefly De Niro scene in the parking lot is um he begs her to stop tasing him yeah, and like that's yeah. a it's it's a two second micro change in his in his um behavior and his tone he's just like come on just don't do this because you you're gonna die I'm gonna have another murder on my hands I might get arrested right now in the parking lot just because th- and this is going to go down if you say one more word and it does, but he's just kind of like, please don't do this, you know, like, and it's so brilliant. So let's check that out real quick. Okay, this is De Niro is. killing it in Jackie Brown. This aisle, or is it the next one up? You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. You're positive? Don't seem sure to me. Hey, don't say, <laughs> don't say anything else, okay? Keep your mouth shut. Well, I mean, don't say one fucking word, okay? you know what because of his performance and the circumstance and the plot that is the most fucked up uh murder scene in any tarantino film it is you know you know what i mean because it's i mean you know you know okay violence that's incredibly horrifically violent it's surprising it's in broad daylight it's in a generic mall parking lot that we've all been in and that's what really shocked me i didn't i didn't see that coming at all and it's his performance is so too. incredible it's, it's insanely ice, ice cold and it's yeah. basically um the, and, and he, he's a real person because of the brilliance of the script and the brilliance of the performance that even this small character is a real person and and like i was saying just that little moment where he's like please don't do this just please it's like i'm begging you it's your last last chance don't say one word and then she does and he's not thinking that is not obviously a rational person because like he couldn't let it go she did say one more word you know what i mean like his head is in such an alien place a prison lifer criminal straight time ass place because that's very much the straight time character that that hoffman has too right mm-hmm. like like uh his head is not screwed on like most people's you know right. and, and is a perfect exhibit of that and uh that's real that shows you that cartoony violence with like you know, like you said, you keep saying it. I samurai like sword. What is, samurai sword? Bruce Willis. Someone getting samurai killed. Sword. I know. Someone getting killed with a samurai samurai sword is just so. It's just too goofy. And yeah, they're dead. Someone killed this other person, but it's just not even in the same planet as no. the scene we just watched. I, mm-hmm. I always feel bad that Max was like kind of responsible because he's like he he's just sitting there and the uh, he kind of gives himself away in the in the. 
women's department there, always oh. watching them, and I love that too. Plotted, you know, he's like, like, uh, like he's like, hey, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> fuck everything, guys. Fuck one fucking hour. We got to talk about the van scene. I mean, we're not dovetailing into another character. We actually haven't gotten to Jackie Brown yet. That's okay. That's but okay. We'll uh, get it. We'll get it. Ah, it's just two seconds because let's just follow through on this whole narrative because. Go. This is this is a beloved scene for all of us in the van, and uh, it's it's just to set up slightly. It's just De Niro is uh, offhandedly mentioning like, yeah, I shot that that blonde girl, and he's like, what? And then he's like, yeah, and then later he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, and the bail bondsman was there in the women's department. And he's like, what? And he's like, I don't know, maybe he's getting his girlfriend some like a bikini, and he's like, holy shit, what is wrong with you? And actually. Because these guys live in ice cold land, um, you know, like uh, like uh, fucking uh, Ordell can't handle another second of his buddy slipping his obvious partner in crime. Uh, and he shoots him and he says all of our favorite line, our, our favorite line here that can be applied to maybe some people in our, our own lives. You yeah. know, like uh, what happened to you, man? You know, he's Your beautiful. Was so beautiful. Was, yeah. was beautiful between the shooting him like the first shot and the second shot killing the De Niro character and uh, yeah I, I could think of a few people where I I would feel like saying that <laughs> maybe not the second part maybe not the second part but uh, yeah, the first yeah, part yeah. like what, what happened to you man great line reading but but it, well, it, well it's there's a lot going on there because like it is kind of grotesquely fascinating about how bad De Niro is doing because you know you're like almost like you know Duh, what the fuck dude like 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 everything's over shut it down because max max is here he wouldn't just be there like that's like you know what that's like it's like when it's like in casino when the three jackpots ring in a row at the same time yeah and uh you know billy what's his name that, that you know anyway um or when and, the frogs and then, drop in magnolia no, like, no, you know, yeah, no 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 whatever no bear kidding, with me kidding. it's like like uh, de niro in casino ironically is is just is can't believe that someone would be so stupid right to say like uh, oh you didn't see that coming that three jackpots going in a row it's in the trillions the probability you know so right, right. you guys know what i'm saying casino. totally and it's just uh, he's so stunned he has to like kill him almost and uh but the line reading so great uh the composition is so great i'm done i could go on a lot more on the van Ray scene model. It's spray bottle, Tom. All right, all right. I'm all out, right. guys. All right, all right. Van scene. You watch okay. the van scene, everybody. Okay, let's. All right, Marcus, you and I, let's start talking about um, Jackie Brown because we haven't really talked about Pam Greer here. And obviously, it's a thing that uh, everyone talks about, you know, first with this, you know, amazing movie, but her performance is just out of control. And, and like I said, for me at the top of the show, one of the best moments in this movie is just that amazing tender moment with her and Max Cherry at the end going into her uh, singing alone in the car. It gets me every fucking time. It's absolutely just a, a beautiful fucking moment. Yeah. I don't know if anyone has anything on it's that. It's a great but... on-screen kiss. It's a great moment. It's one of the great <laughs> kisses. It feels very good yeah. watching that movie. Yeah. <laughs> watching the it's... kiss at the end, yeah. It's so good. <laughs> I mean, talking about a kiss in a Tarantino film is so crazy. Um, I know. But one thing I wanted to bring up, if you guys can indulge me, and this could be a segue into the Jackie Brown thing, is uh, I absolutely adore the scene um, in the middle of the movie when um, she, when Jackie Brown uh, invites Max Cherry into her apartment, and it's this beautiful, you know, naturalistic scene of these two. Morning. It's the morning, and and this is where it's kind of they're kind of talking about where they're at in life. They're having a real moment. They're sharing. She's putting on a record, and then he's kind of like, "Whoa, she's playing records." And then he's making coffee for her, or sorry, she's making coffee for him. But what's really great about that scene is uh, the way it's cut. Uh, I think is really, really tremendous. I just love how entering in that scene. It's it's almost like the editing is like an Ozu movie or something where it's just like on her and then it's just these singles going back and forth across the room yeah. and then with these great little insert shots as she's as she's making the coffee and pouring in the pouring coffee. Pouring the coffee and yeah. Yeah, it's really tremendously well Getting cut. the coffee cup, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All of that's so great just to bring a subtle little layer of of style uh and, and to that yeah. just really simple dialogue scene that's written simple quiet well. moment, yeah. Yeah, and it's just it's, that. It's so great. It does that sometimes, like little close-up details that happen in the movie, you know, and it's like, but it's not the whole movie. It's not overdone like um, no Aronofsky or something or like, uh, <laughs> oh boy. you know, like, or like, what's the other guy, uh, uh, the British guy that makes all the comedy guy, films? Guy, like, uh, lots of, 
Richie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just there's a lot of people that just overdo the inserts. In yeah. The- you gotta you gotta have restraint with the inserts. Yeah. And Quentin, I think Quentin does inserts perfectly. My personal favorite insert is the, uh, the that old kind of handle that you have to pull on a cigarette machine. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that yeah, yeah, translucent yeah. plastic thing. Right. Like, he does an insert on that. Anyway. But right. anyway, it's just it's just a really great moment of that both the their performances. Uh, oh, right. Of just um, just kind of establishing, you know, their, where they're at in life, you know, and it's such a real yeah. moment. And we well, should... Well, I think we have, but yeah, I mean, compounding all of what you're saying right. is that these people both aren't like 28 years old. You know no. what I mean? Yeah. And so there's this other just rarefied air that's happening where he's talking about, yeah, I got plugs like five years ago. And she's like, my ass is pretty big, you know? And it's just like, who, who makes a movie like that? <laughs> you know, it. Tarantino it's, was younger too. He was like under four. Do you think he was under 40 when he made this? 30 like, maybe. Yeah. 30. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or thirty-one. It's so 32. I mean, it's so uh, mature to like make a movie about maturity, you know. And, yeah, and I know. Not only did he just—it's not just something that he just cast these people because you know and didn't think about it. There's ages like a is a huge like subtext in the movie. There's that uh, sort of like revealing kind of uh, at Beaumont's apartment. There's the Tony Curtis interview playing in the background, and right. I didn't know yeah. what it was. But I remember I looked it up a few <laughs> years ago when we watched it, and uh, and it's like Tony Curtis saying that. You know, he's got to, he would never date a woman his own age. You know, he's like in his like seventies or something. Yeah. He's wearing a horrible, he's wearing a horrible toupee. And yeah. yeah, it's just, and it's amazing that he put that in there, you know, just for us to kind of ruminate on later about like how this movie is about aging Good and point. loving and loving when you're older. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's also about being incredibly stoned and leaving the TV on and watching yeah. anything, <laughs> which is what Beaumont, Beaumont's, that's Beaumont's tease. I know, I love it. Oh, this fucking movie is awesome. Thank really you for reminding is. me of that. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but, 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 but let's get back to the scene, like you said. And we do have a yeah. moment of it if we want to just sure. look at it, you know, as we're talking maybe even. You know. We should talk about Pam, too, and just in general. You know. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, let's get into Pam. I mean, uh, he's my aunt. Otherwise, that money's just going to sit over there in Cabo. What's the sugar? No, thanks. Insert. There's got to be other ways of getting it out. Maybe. But I'm the only one he's ever used. I mean, he can't use his other people. They're crooks. I mean, he might try to bring the money in himself, but he ain't They also have good chemistry, the two of them. So either he recruits another Cabo stewardess so he continues to trust me, and I made him feel like he still can. Are you going to offer to set him up? Yeah, if I get off. Otherwise, fuck him. (laughs) Fuck him. I love the way she says that. Fuck him. Well, the thing, she's so surprising because, um, you know, she's gotten more complex as the decades have rolled on in her life, and there's this... uh, there's layers to her. I think that happens to every person who's getting older is that there's more, there's just more layers, which just sort of stands to reason, unless you're a complete idiot, you know, like you're going to get more complex. And so what I mean is she's got in that film, vulnerability, conniving, <laughs> vulnerability, strength, strength, confusion, yeah. panic, the opportunity to have more range as an actor. You know? Right. Like, right. I think that she was always like a beauty, you know, sometimes she'd be silent in a movie, like in yeah. something wicked this way comes or like uh you know, and in the seventies, she was like really um, like you know, mama, like white mama, and strong woman. You know, bad mama jamma kind yeah. of thing. But not a lot of range. Yeah, yeah. This let her let her have like a lot of range as an actor, which is like, yeah, and she kills it. <laughs> and, and I got to keep an eye on her because well, she's also doing a few things as this character. Is that you know she's faking out the cops, for instance. That's what I was going to say. Uh, she can stand up. Yeah. To the yeah cops. So she's. Yeah. Yeah, she's and actually it's funny, um, a very revealing thing she says right at the very end of Forrester is, you know, she comes in after everything's done and Ardell's dead and everything. And she's just sort of following up with him and she goes, hey, uh, I didn't use you. You know what I mean? And he's like, I didn't I didn't think you did. You know, but like she did have to circle back and make that clear because she was playing everybody in that except, I guess, Max, you know, and she was because maybe in the very beginning she was playing Max. But I don't but I think even just at that uh, coffee table morning, she probably turned and went like, I actually like this person because she was strategizing. And I think she was factoring in Max, you know, um, because she because she's thinking, you know what it is when you make such little money and you're getting older, it's like, you know, you have to think like a squirrel man or something. You have to figure this shit out. So she and then she gets in trouble and then she really has to figure this out. So she had to connive. She's conniving. You know what? She's a better conniver and a better schemer than Ordell ever was. And mm-hmm. it's proven by her winning, you know, but like they're both scheming because guess what? 
they're poor black people, you know what I mean, in America. And they have to have a big part of their brain be playing the thing, playing the odds, playing these people against these other people. And she does that so well that she's also acting inside the movie as the character with the cops, especially, you know, um, and Ordell. She's playing them. Brilliant. Right. At, at the end, does she sort of like give up on her original plan? Cause she's like practicing with the gun, right? By herself in that room. And then at the end, there's this kind of shock surprise that like the cops come out and kill Ordell. Right. I interpreted that as she, that she gave up on that plan or that she was going to do it. And she called, you know, the, yeah, the to come, you know, I'm like, leaning like, towards something like that too. Yeah. yeah. She was going to take, take it on herself like the movie, but then she kind of like, yeah. Two minute warning guys. Two minute senses, warning. Yeah. I just forgot that mm -hmm. we did have one more clip that we wanted to show about uh, when she exits jail. Uh, just play it. Just play it. Yeah. Just play it. Just it's self-explanatory. We can yeah. talk over it. Uh, yeah. I pulled this yeah. because he looks great. And basically, this is pure cinema. You know what I mean? We, we've 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 been introduced to Jackie when this scene happens. Like we've seen her right from the first from the credits. But this is the first time Max sees her, and it's such a big, pure movie moment. This is what movies are, and whatever dumbasses think movies are supposed to be, this is filmmaking right here. This is the movies. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's just perfect. That's you know, so great. in the way and her dramatic way that she enters his life. It's funny you know? listening to what Quentin said about that scene where he said that certain audiences that certain audiences felt like it was we're in Max's head and he's like no we're not in fucking Max's head I put the song in there I'm just trying to make her look fucking <laughs> badass I think that's I think it's bullshit I think I he's agree. doing something to deflect from uh, he's not allowing himself to make a very romantic moment right. and have that be the inner monologue with I that agree. beautiful soul love song Cause it is and romantic. he's kind of like He's getting like he's hedging his bets. He's like, I don't want to like go out there and say that I did this big, beautiful, romantic moment because that's what it is. And I'm sorry, I'm not buying it. What he's saying because he's saying oh, that like he's saying that music because if he was saying that soul music's playing to just be like, look at the big bad sister come, you know, it's that's not it. It's a romantic song. I'm done. I gotta say the music's so amazing in this movie and uh, the fact that Vampires Lesbos songs yeah. and Vampires Lesbos. The yes, costumes, Lesbos, yes. The costume design why, is. Why really is Hotel listening good. to Vampires Lesbos? <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm done. Wow, we needed be. more than an hour for that one. We Definitely. did. Fuck. What happened? Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it evaporated. We spent a lot of time, hey, and we didn't yeah. even play a lot of clips. Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's okay. We got it. That's one fucking hour. I had fun. Jackie Brown. Uh, everybody, uh, I fucking love the movie. You know where I stand on it. Uh, so watch it. It's right on HBO right now. HBO Max, by the way. Uh, watch it now. If it's been a while, watch the fuck out of it. It's, yeah. it's great. I love and it. Go have some barbecue at Sam's Hofbrow. At, yeah. <laughs> a very really real is, place that I've been to. Yeah. It really you is great. You guys been there? Uh, I haven't, actually. I've not it's, been where there. it's where gangs meet. Oh, okay. It's, it's real shit. Real tough it's shit. Sam's Hofbrow. gone now, unfortunately, but uh, Hofbrow is still okay. there. Okay. Uh, yeah, definitely go back oh, and watch this movie, but do not uh, watch any of his other movies. Okay. Um, so oh, come let's on. Let's talk Aww. about <laughs> Love Fest. It's a love fest. Jeez. All right. Uh, well, that happened. So I'm not a fan. Now, I'm not a fan. All right. All right. Okay. Let's spray talk bottle. about. Uh, yeah, spray bottle. Uh, okay. Let's talk about uh, next week, Tom. Tom, next week is a very special <laughs> episode because you know what? It it's, it's a special episode of one fucking hour <laughs> my, my birthday happens to be the next uh, uh recording of this episode oh. of, of, of the show and uh th for this episode i didn't give a fuck and i said this is what we're doing and you guys are being held hostage you could even <laughs> not, you could have not seen this hate this film be confused and all of the above we are doing birthday boys fucking movie and it's Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> What's that film? Mormon. Okay, sorry. Um, Christ. I apologize in advance. I'll keep it brief. It's 1983. That's an hour. <laughs> right. We're, next week we're doing, this is my birthday, Jerry Lewis's 1983 film, Cracking Up, a.k.a. Smorgasbord. And uh, we're going to have gonna some gonna explain fun. to us how it's possible that someone could love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. Yeah. I don't, love is not the word. It's part of my DNA now. Uh, and I'll get into that a little bit. And we'll have maybe some fun pyrotechnics because the film is very um, 
elasticy and flexible and malleable, and you can kind of like uh, remix it like a DJ. Mumming. <laughs> you know? So we'll have maybe a little bit of that sprinkled in. Because that's really how I experienced this film. It's, uh, it's a special film for me. Uh, I don't recommend it to anyone at all. So we're going to do it. I think uh, <laughs> next week's episode is going to be a personal journey. Like Martin Scorsese has his personal journey, you know, with film series. Right. Next week is the personal journey of Tom Fitzgerald's uh, relationship right. with Cracking Up, I think, is what it really is. And again, right? I apologize in advance. Now, that means you guys, I guess, get birthday uh, picks, too. So you know, <laughs> keep, keep that in mind. Yeah. You know. Yeah, whatever. I'll probably do like come and see or something for my birthday film. Yeah, uh, it's like an indulgence. Oh, cheer! That's cheerful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. good times. So, uh, we'll all right, the candles, bro. That was good stuff. Uh, that was a we fun love one. this movie. We love Jackie Brown. We hope you do too. Give it a watch. It's rewarding. It truly is. Uh, all right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening uh, to one fucking hour, and we will see you again next week for the big birthday show. And now it is your moment of zen. Have a great weekend, everybody. See you later. I mean, yeah, it's very important, yeah. that long sequence of the, of the, the bodybuilding women with the, with the automatic weapons. And that sends the whole thing up so that you know that the violence has become a kind of burlesque. And so you have Ordell. You, you never know if Ordell is really a hard man or if he's actually a cream puff. Shut your raggedy ass up and sit the fuck down. Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. Yeah.